0: As Roy mentioned, this is uh, the last in our series on practical Christianity, and I do have a great feeling as I stand up here in front of you, not just that it's going to be over after this, but that um, just that I I feel that you guys are behind me. I feel that the feedback that I've got as I've um, done these sermons has received really positive feedback, and that... um, Basically, I feel that I'm preaching to Converted. You all know what I've been saying. Uh, You all knew it before I preached it most of the time. I've just reminded you of stuff. And um, a lot of you are even putting it into practice or trying your best to put it into practice at any rate. There are many people in this church who are involved in the service of the church um, and are, are really seeking to serve Christ as his body on earth. Uh, We've got huge numbers of people in this church involved in youth fellowship, in clay, in junior church, in Bible classes, in mothers and toddlers, in the various committees for buildings, evangelism, youth, uh, discipleship. Loads of you came out and helped with How Can We Love You? Um, There's a student sports ministry going on with many people involved. Uh, There's people involved in the AV um, with welcoming visitors to the church and to your homes. There's visiting people uh, in Lakeside or Laganside, whatever it is, Lakeside. So there's loads of of ministry going on within the church. There's a huge amount, and I just get the impression that there's a large group of people in this church who are passionate about serving God and really want to represent Him as His body on earth. And if there is anyone here this evening who feels that Um, they would love to serve God and they've missed out on an opportunity, can I encourage you to see Roy or to see one of the elders? They would love to hear from you and they will do their best to get you into something, something that you're suited to, um, somewhere that you can serve best. Paul tells us in Ephesians that it's part of uh, the role of church leadership to equip people to serve. In Ephesians 4, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. There's obviously a lot of effort being put into serving and representing God as his church here. What I'd like us to look at this evening is how we can make the most of this effort. How do we serve God best? How do we represent him as his body on earth? How do we pick up our cross and follow him? And in this sermon, I'm going to suggest we do this in three ways. By working with God and not against him. By operating our ministry his way and not our way. And by following the example of Jesus. But I also want to show how the devil is going to try and stop us from doing this. And by looking at some of the tactics that he uses to try and make our ministry ineffective. And hopefully this will help us as a church to grow in our understanding of how we can serve God better and more effectively. The passage that I'm going to be using for this morning's service, or this evening's uh, sermon, is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is a passage about the temptation of Jesus, an event that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I believe that this passage sets out for us some of the intentions of Jesus for the way in which he will conduct his ministry. It tells us something about the way in which God operates, and it shows us some of the dangers and temptations and distractions that we need to look out for as we attempt to serve God. Now, before we read through this passage, I'd like to set it in some sort of context. Matthew sets Jesus' temptation immediately after his baptism. Jesus' baptism is where Jesus is shown, uh, Jesus shows his obedience to God by going and obeying him and being baptized, and he is shown to be God's son. Uh, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So although Jesus receives The Holy Spirit, at the time of his baptism, he does not begin his ministry with a display of power, but rather he is led by the Spirit into the desert to fast and to face temptation. It's only after this temptation experience that Jesus seems to begin his ministry in any sort of powerful way, and we can read about that at the end of Matthew chapter 4. But first of all, let's read through Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone alone, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. I suppose the first question or the biggest question that comes into my head as I read through this passage is, why did Jesus need to go through this temptation experience in the desert? He had received the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he just start his public ministry of preaching and healing? Why did he go into the desert to face temptation? Uh, Some commentators in the NIV Bible Commentary. They've got quite hard names to pronounce, so I'll just say they're commentators, Um, say this. They say, to tempt can also mean to test. And in scripture, tempting or testing can reveal or develop character. In scripture, tempting or testing can reveal or develop character. So what these commentators seem to be suggesting is that the testing that Jesus faces in the desert are either going to reveal who he is um, or develop his character in some way to prepare him for his ministry. Also, in reading through this passage, I have the distinct impression that the temptations that Jesus faces were carefully chosen by the devil in order to try and make Jesus' ministry ineffective. And I believe that these are the same type of temptations that we will face as we try try to represent God in a practical way on earth. If we are able to recognize and resist these temptations, then I'll believe that our ministry will be far more effective. The first temptation that Jesus faced um, was to turn some stones into loaves of bread. This was a temptation for Jesus because he was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And there's some suggestion that the stones that were in the desert in the area uh, that Jesus is thought to have been fasting would have looked like loaves of bread um, at the time that they used to use in Palestine at that time. And I've got a picture up there. And maybe they look a bit like rolls of bread, uh, these stones. And so Jesus was walking around in the desert with stones lying around him that would have looked like loaves of bread. We also know from the beginning of John's Gospel that Jesus was there when the world was created and that he was involved in the creation process. So Jesus would have been tempted because he was easily able to turn these stones that looked like bread into loaves of bread. The temptation was a reality for Jesus because he could easily do it. Another thing that would have made this temptation uh, so tough for Jesus was the fact that it would have seemed quite a reasonable thing to do. After all, he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He would have to eat at some point. And he would, in the future, use miraculous power to produce food as part of his ministry when he fed the 4,000 and when he fed the 5,000. So why not use his power now to feed himself for the sake of survival? We are unlikely to face this temptation to turn stones into loaves of bread because we can go to the shops. So what can we learn from this temptation? What was this temptation really about? I believe that here the temptation for Jesus was about him trying to solve his own problems using his own strength or his own wisdom rather than trusting his father. After all, the Spirit had led Jesus into the desert in order to fast. So the sin would have been for him to trust his own strength and judgment rather than obeying his Father's will. Here Jesus proves that doing his Father's will is more important to him than food. Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 34, that his food is to do the will of his Father who sent him. So by resisting the temptation... Jesus shows that he trusts his father. He knows that his father knows what is best for him. He knows that his father will get him to eat when the time is right. Um, He doesn't try and stop it on his own accord, but he's being led by his father into what he should do. And he does this even though it seems tough or maybe doesn't seem to make sense and and something we need to learn. If we we do not trust God fully with every aspect of our lives, then how can we ask anyone else to? When we are serving and representing God, we need to trust Him fully. Otherwise, we misrepresent Him as either not good enough to want to do good for us or not powerful enough to do the good He would want to do. If we say that we believe that God is all good and all powerful, yet in our actions we... um, Don't put our trust in him. What are we really saying to other people? It takes us back to the first sermon. Do our actions and our words have integrity? Often we can be tempted to try and fix a situation that we find ourselves in through our own strength or through our own wisdom, not by trusting the promises that God has given to us. When we give in to this temptation, we lose our witness for Christ. One commentator says this, We can be tempted in the same kind of way if we have special privileges or opportunities. We may be tempted to use them to our advantage. We can so easily find ourselves in situations where we can justify our wrong behavior in the name of a higher good. Jesus could not surrender to the devil's suggestion, not because it was harmful in itself, but because it went against the will of God. And I believe that the second temptation is very much or very closely linked with the first temptation. In the first temptation, Jesus shows just how much he trusts his father. So in the second temptation, the devil challenges him to test that trust. The devil asks Jesus to throw himself from the highest point in the temple and have God's angels rescue him. I have to admit that wouldn't be much of a temptation for me. Not because I'm so good that I'm not tempted by the same things as Jesus is, but because my faith isn't that strong that I would be prepared to throw myself off a 30-meter building and see if God would catch me. But this temptation was a reality for Jesus for two reasons. Firstly, Jesus had just shown his trust in his Father. So when the devil quotes to him from Psalm 91, a psalm which promises protection for those who put their trust in God, he challenges Jesus to prove his trust by testing God's word. And by doing this, he is tempting Jesus to see how much God loves him and accepts him by seeing what God will do for him. And I'm sure sometimes you've prayed a prayer asking God to do something for you in the hope that he will do it to prove how much he loves you or prove that he is with you. I know I have. A lot has been made of the fact that by jumping from the highest point of the temple and surviving, Jesus would have been noticed. I know in uh, the classes I had with Daisy Maxwell in Barfoss Bible College, he showed us a picture of the highest point in the temple Uh, from a little model construction and pointed out that there was a marketplace below it. And if Jesus had jumped from the highest point in the temple and landed without hurting himself um, in this marketplace, he would have been noticed. Um, And he would have brought Jesus much fame and many followers. So part of the temptation for Jesus would have been to use a display of power to get people to follow him. And I think that both of these are temptations that we face um, today as we try to represent God as earth on earth. We are tempted to test God's power and protection by trying to force Him to act on our demands. We are tempted to feel God's love and approval by displaying His power in our lives. And like Jesus, we can be tempted to try and gain followers by producing the spectacular even if it's not God's way of doing it. Both of these misrepresent God. One commentator says this, that demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care is wrong. The appropriate attitude is trust and obedience. Demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care is wrong. The appropriate attitude is trust and obedience. God's promise, which the devil quoted in Psalm 91, was there to reassure those who were in trouble, not to encourage reckless behavior on the part of people who had no real problems but merely wanted to show off. The question we need to ask ourselves is this Are we tempted to lean towards the spectacular in in the hope of attracting crowds, even when this is not honoring to God? In order to test whether we've fallen for the second temptation, we can ask ourselves two questions. The first one is, is what we're doing God's method of working? Often God works in ways that we don't expect him to work in. Um, For example, when he sent Jesus to earth, um, people were expecting him to send a king with a vast army to save them from the Romans. They weren't expecting somebody to come as a servant king. So are we operating God's way or are we operating the way we think it should be done? And the second question is this. Who gets the glory for our so-called outreach? Is it God or us? If we find that we are trying to force God to do the spectacular, or if we find that we get the glory for our outreach, then it's likely that we have fallen for the second temptation. In the third temptation the devil offers Jesus a shortcut to his kingdom. Jesus knew that he would have to suffer and die before he entered his glory. If he bowed down and worshipped Satan just once, he could enjoy all of the glory without enduring the suffering. Jesus had come to establish his kingdom on earth. He knew that the way ahead would be marked with hardship, rejection, Pain and suffering. So, the temptation for Jesus here was to try and skip all of this necessary hardship needed to establish God's kingdom and to gain an easy rule. We also face this temptation when we say that the end justifies the means, or when we just justify our methods of achievement by saying that the results speak for themselves. This does not work in establishing God's kingdom. We may establish some kind of kingdom this way. We may establish some sort of followers, but it will not be God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, only the right means can bring about the right end. Jesus could only properly achieve his task of establishing God's kingdom on earth by living a perfect life, by dying an unjust death on our behalf. Anything less would not have paid the price for our sins. Anything different would not have established God's kingdom on earth. If Jesus had fallen for this temptation, there would be no forgiveness of sins. We would not be reconciled to God. The challenge for us is not to take shortcuts in order to get more followers. If we do, the people we get following will not be following the right path anyway. We will be building a different type of kingdom. So we need to ask ourselves whether the methods that we use to represent God as Windsor Baptist Church, or individually, um, reflect God's service uh, standards of service, mercy, justice, and love. So do the methods that we use to represent God, reflect God's standards of service, mercy, justice, and love. After all, whose kingdom are we building? God's kingdom or ours? But Matthew then goes on to tell us that Jesus, after he has faced these temptations... Um after he's faced these temptations, the devil leaves him and angels come and minister to him. So in showing his obedience to God, Jesus once again receives a display of approval. After he's obedient to God by being baptized, he receives God's approval. A voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And this time he receives God's approval when God sends his angels to help him in his time of need. This goes to show that if we do operate our ministry God's way, that God is faithful and he will be willing to be involved in that ministry. It's so after this, that Jesus begins a successful ministry of miracles and preaching. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25, just further on in the chapter. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him, all who were ill, with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, and those having seizures. the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I believe that one of the reasons why the church in the West has been shrinking in size, one of the reasons why we don't often see God at work in power these days in the West, is because we are trying to extend his kingdom our way. We're trying to use our own wisdom to extend God's kingdom. We are falling for one or more of these temptations that Jesus faced. God promised that he will be with us. He has promised that we will be fruitful. All we need to do is abide in him, to obey his will. And I believe that if we do represent God right, by doing his things his way, then he will give us success as we serve him. So what have we learned today? From the first temptation, we learned um, that when we are following God's will, we need to trust God and not rely on our own strength and power to represent him. We learned that our actions need to match our words for our witness to be effective. We learned that none of us can fully represent God on our own. We need God with us. Unless God is involved, um, it will not work. In the second temptation, we learned that we should not test God by trying to force him to act. And there can be some confusion between the first and the second temptation. Um, They may seem to contradict each other. In the first temptation, we're told to rely on God and not trust in our own strength. In the second temptation, we're told not to test God. And there is a balance required. When does trusting God become testing God? And I think the key to answering that question is um, in doing God's will. When we are doing God's will, we need to trust God to act and keep his promises. When we are doing our own will and we expect him to act, then we are testing God. In the third temptation, we learned that there are no shortcuts to establishing God's kingdom. If we are not serving others, loving our neighbors sacrificially, and giving ourselves fully to God, then we are not building God's kingdom or we are building a very limited version of it. Um, But there is an encouragement at the end of the chapter that when we do serve God his way, he will be involved, and we do not have to rely on our own strength, um, but he will help us, and he will send his angels to help us too. John chapter 15, verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing.